Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 69 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is, There is a whole world of people out there that need help. An interview with Emma Franklin. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Today's podcast guest is Emma Franklin. Emma Franklin is a young woman from England who first started experiencing the symptoms of a tick disease when she was just 12 years old after she went on a holiday to Florida in the U.S. At 13, she got the HPV vaccine, which debilitated her immune system and caused her to have severe fatigue. At 15, she got swine flu and a glandular fever, and her symptoms never went away. As she got older, Emma Franklin began to lose relationships with her friends, family, and romantic partners. Almost everyone around her, aside from her mom, didn't believe that she could be so sick but look so good. When she reached the age of 20, Emma Franklin was completely bedridden for seven months. She was in a semi-conscious state where she couldn't move her arms or her legs, be exposed to light, or have bed sheets or clothing touch her skin. She almost had to have a feeding tube inserted because she could barely ingest pureed food. During this time, Emma Franklin's mom left her job to care full-time for her daughter. She never doubted that her daughter was sick and fought to get her help. Then finally, they visited a private clinic in Hertfordshire where Emma Franklin tested positive for Lyme. Emma Franklin has utilized social media to share tips for healing with her followers. As a result of suffering from depression while she was bedridden, she wants to let other Limeys know that no matter what, they are not alone. Hi, Emma Franklin, and welcome to our program. Hi, thank you for having me. We're really happy to have you today, Emma. And can you uh, first share with our listeners where you're calling from? Yeah, I am from England in the UK, specifically from Staffordshire, which is basically in the Midlands. And Emma, how old are you? I'm 27. And what is your relationship status? I'm in a relationship and we've been together for nearly two years now. Can you share with us whether or not you're currently working? I just started working again after nine years out of work. I do a few hours a week doing freelance social media and journalism for independent local businesses. What's your educational background? I went to a all-girls like private Catholic school growing up and then I went to a boarding school. I don't know if you have that in America, but in the UK, it's where you basically sleep at the school as well. And then I kind of did like part-time college, which was between university and school. Um, and then I started university, but I had to drop out after two years. So I didn't complete my degree. What is your relationship with your parents? My parents were separated. They separated when I was about three or four years old. Um, and I grew up with my mom. So she is like everything. She's my best friend and she's the one who's looked after me. Yeah, and then my dad supports like my treatment. So that's, that's the kind of way that it's always been before I was ill and then up until now. Do you have any siblings? Yeah, I've got an older sister and I've got a younger brother. My dad's remarried. So Emma, can you share with us when you began to show symptoms of what you now know to be your tick disease? Yeah, so I was a really, really healthy child. I never got sick. I never had time off school. Um, I was really active, just living life, doing everything. I went to literally every single club you could ever imagine. And then I just went on holiday, like to Florida and one summer and then came back to school. And I'd gone from like top of the class, A-star student, doing like math GCSEs a year early to 
GCSEs are like the kind of standard exams you do here to like all of a sudden like I couldn't read properly I couldn't write properly I couldn't concentrate and I went to set exams for like a different school and my mom was telling me today that they were really confused because it was for a school for like really intelligent children and I really excelled in all of it but there was one part of it which I was really really poor in and it was to do with understanding like the meaning of things um so the the school said it doesn't match any of her other tests like and for English it was really advanced for like spelling and the meanings of words but this one part of the English like test like my brain just couldn't do so really it was like cognitive dysfunction brain fog and then I started slipping like in the class like my grades were slipping but nothing had really changed yeah so that's what happened for two years and behavioral problems as well just I think the lack of attention and the focus to my brain fog, I just couldn't concentrate. And it, it looked like I was being naughty and like, but I wasn't, I was just ill. So do you believe that you were bitten by a tick when you came to the US when you were 12 years old? I don't think I'll ever be 100% sure because I never remember a rash. And obviously like now we know not everyone gets a rash, a bullseye rash. But I know Florida is quite um, like prevalent of Lyme disease. But also I did grow up in the countryside in the UK, which now we know there is Lyme as well. So maybe it was Florida, or maybe it was in England. I don't think I'll ever know. But I do have an American strain of Lyme. I forgot to, yeah, I forgot about that. I've got an American strain um, because there's the European strain and the American. So we think it might have been Florida. What did you know about ticks and tick diseases prior to you showing the symptoms that you now know to be your tick disease? So I had never even heard of tick disease or Lyme disease or any kind of co-infections. Literally, like, it's something no one has heard of here. Like, when I first got diagnosed a few years ago, nobody had heard of Lyme disease and I told them that's what's wrong with me. But now, thankfully, everybody, if I tell anyone, everybody knows about it because it has such big media coverage now. I mean, but back then... Obviously, when I was diagnosed three years ago, I didn't know about it. I mean, so when I first got sick all those years ago, I'd never heard of it. And, and you also are told, or people that did know about it think that you see the tick and you see the rash. So I think that's the main misconception. So even like my parents who had heard of Lyme, they thought you can't have it unless you've seen a tick or a rash. Emma, as your symptoms began to develop, now this is going back to when you were 12 years old, how did your teachers treat you differently after you began to show your changes in behavior? To be honest, like it was not very nice. I remember my mom told me today that I don't, I don't remember a lot of it. I think like my memory was affected as well, but that the school like contacted my parents because they thought that I was taking like the mick out of the teachers. When I would ask questions because I generally didn't understand things, they actually thought that I was, making a joke out of them because they knew how clever I was so they were like surely she can't be serious asking this but it's just because my brain didn't function properly so the teachers were quite rude about it and quite horrible and they thought that I was really just being not very nice to them but that wasn't the case at all. As your symptoms were developing starting at the age of 12 did you begin to have any social challenges meaning were your friends treating you differently or your neighbors treating you differently? No, like not really because it was just cognitive symptoms. So a lot of the time when you're a teenager as well, 
people blame it on that oh she's just been a teenager oh she's just turning into a teenager because there was nothing physical yet there could, there was always like another reason for why I was having behavioral problems or my brain wasn't working properly or there must be stress somewhere else in your life people would always say like that kind of thing I think people never put down physical illness as a possible cause of cognitive problems and, and that's why it was never recognized now, as your symptoms developed between the ages of 12 and then when you got your diagnosis at 23, did anyone treat you differently? Did you lose friendships? Did you lose support of family members? Did it have any social impact on you as your symptoms developed? Yeah, like completely. I mean, as it got worse and I developed more symptoms and then it became more severe and my life was affected, I lost a lot of friends because as I grew up, even though I was poorly, I still was like the life of the party, like going out all the time, was really sociable, loved people. My mom's just like that as well, like we're quite similar. And I just, I couldn't do that anymore. And it's almost like that's how people know you and then you're no longer like that. You're not the same really, are you? So it's almost like people don't really want to be friends with you anymore because you can't really bring anything to the table when you're sick. Yeah, it was really hard. And family as well, like, thinking, you know, oh, you're 14, just, you know, eat some more meat or all the simple things. Like, yeah, it was hard, but almost like I don't really mind. Like, I lost a lot of people, but it almost made me see them differently. So that's kind of been the blessing in disguise. I can see now the people that are good people and the people that are not. It's given me that skill, which I didn't have before. Emma, were there any people in your life who doubted whether you were really sick when you were going through your diagnostic journey? Yeah, to be honest. <laughs> well, if you're, I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, ME, on the NHS, which is what now I know most people with Lyme are originally diagnosed with because we present with this energy problem. So we're all diagnosed with this syndrome which they don't really know what causes it where we have this fatigue and the treatment for that in the UK was actually for a long time seeing a psychiatrist because they didn't know the root cause and they didn't know how to help us so if people google your illness and the treatment is like see a psychiatrist they're not going to think you're like actually physically ill they're going to think you've got physically ill but because of like a mental health reason so that was really tough. Like, I actually saw psychologists and psychiatrists for years because there was no other way, really, in the UK. I mean, they've changed the laws now because they know that doesn't necessarily help us or, like, cure, like, make us better. But it was hard years after years after years of just seeing psychologists and psychiatrists with no one really saying there's something physically wrong with her, even though I was so ill, like, in a wheelchair... I mean, I had this one man say to me, the psychiatrist, oh, I'm going to get you out of the wheelchair in a year. I was like, well, how are you going to do that by me talking to you? Like, it was really bad. And then eventually I got to this one woman and she just screamed, like, at who took me. And she was like, you need to take her to a hospital. Like, she is physically ill. And I thought, thank God, like, this woman, like, stood up for me. Yeah, it was really tough. So Emma, during the first two years you were sick when you were 12 to 14 years old, did you see any other doctors other than mental health related doctors? No, like my mom 
I think it was when I was 14, she started taking me to like a physical doctor, like a GP, general practitioner it's called here, to say like there's something wrong with her, like physically, because then I was like in bed quite a lot. But prior to that, it was more just like, oh, she's causing trouble. Oh, she's behavioural. Oh, she's just a naughty, bad child. That was kind of the attitude of people generally towards me from like 12 to 14 when I only had cognitive symptoms. In your pre-interview questionnaire, you noted that you weren't able to read properly. You couldn't write properly. You couldn't concentrate. And that you really couldn't even understand your teachers or even remember things. So did they ever think this could have been a physical or neurological issue or they thought those symptoms were the result of a mental health related illness? No, like literally nobody, like nobody connected it until I was literally 23. So 10 years later. And once you started developing your physical symptoms and now here you are two years into your sickness, you're now 14 years old and you start Mm -hmm. to develop some physical symptoms. Can you tell us what those symptoms were when they first began? Yeah, so I got a vaccine like for cervical cancer. It's like the HPV jab, which is recommended to all girls at that age in the UK. And basically after it, I just wasn't really the same. So prior to this, even though I had cognitive symptoms, I never really picked up bugs and I was never off school, I was never sick. But after I had the vaccine, I just, I, I literally just caught everything and was off school like all the time, always needed antibiotics. I was just ill then. I was like a sickly child. Was prior to that, you would have never considered me a sickly child. And then when I was like, yeah, about 14, my mom took me to the doctors and said, this is not right. Like there's something wrong with her because this is not normal. Like most kids, they get sick and they bounce back. Like I was getting a cold and I, it was taking me like four weeks to get rid of it. And I was off school. Whereas other people, you know, they might, it might go in a few days. So at this point, your mother started to realize two years in that this is not just a psychological issue and that you're having real physical symptoms. And she started to pressure doctors for a better and more realistic diagnosis. What happened with your doctors? What were the responses your doctors were giving your mother at that time? Well, they do like the general blood tests, like white blood cells, red blood cells. But now I know they're so basic, they're not going to pick anything up unless you've probably got a life-threatening illness um, that's like different to Lyme well then that happened for like two years and then they started referring me to specialists so cardiologists immunologists neurologists and I went literally round the block of every single specialist that existed within the NHS which is our public health care system and every single one couldn't find something wrong with me but now I look back every single one of them might have found a minor thing like, oh, your B12's low, oh, this is a bit off, but there was not one person connecting all of the dots. We don't have functional medicine doctors here. And that's the problem. They were all looking at it through their lens and there was no one mapping the whole picture. So because your symptoms were whole body symptoms, not just related to the heart for a cardiologist or the brain for a neurologist, they were just seeing the symptoms pertaining to their specialty. And, and since you yes. don't have functional doctors in, in the UK, to take that whole body approach, they weren't really able to find the collective picture as to what was wrong with you. Yeah, or like the immunologist would say, oh, your white blood cell count is low, but oh, it's fine because nothing else is wrong. But then if you look at all the other specialists, they all found something, but none of them found something that was enough to kind of pursue it or to look further. So at this point, did any of these doctors misdiagnose you with anything pertaining to their specialty? 
No, I still was not diagnosed with anything until I was 18. Yeah, so I was still just like poorly. After school, I would come home, go to bed, progress like a two years then to the point where literally I was coming home from school, going to bed. My mom was waking me up, like eating. I was eating, then going back to sleep, going back to school, sleep, school. It was just like that all the time for like another two years. And at this point, were you able to still go to school and were you doing well enough to pass and move on with your school? Yeah, life? so I was still at school, but I was just feeling ill and like in bed when I was not at school. And it wasn't like I was bedridden, like if someone just said, come downstairs, I could get out of bed and do it. But I just had this exhaustion, like I had the worst flu ever, like all the time. Yeah, so it was still, yeah, I was still like functioning. And at school, no one really would have noticed. But at home, because my mom was with me all the time and I've got an older sister, she was like, this is not normal. This is not how kids like should be. As time went on, you're seeing these doctors, you're not getting any diagnosis and your health is continuing to worsen. Can you walk us through what additional symptoms you started to get and how you started to feel worse? Yeah, so basically it was then like flu-like symptoms all the time. I think I, when I was like 15, I had swine flu we had an epidemic here in about 2009 and I caught it and I was so sick and I had glandular fever EBV as well and basically then I had flu-like symptoms all the time so ever since then my throat has been inflamed sore my sinuses hurt my ears hurt my glands are swollen and painful like muscle pain as well like I just felt like I've had the flu ever since because my because my immune system was already compromised it would catch these infections and it just couldn't fight them off and then I was I had a car accident and I had like a neck injury and I had ski accident and I had a really severe head injury they said the helmet actually saved my life and that really like the trauma to the body with both of those within the space of six months and just spiraled down even more. So then I I was diagnosed then with like chronic fatigue syndrome and then fibromyalgia, like chronic pain. And I remember saying to the man, like, I feel like I've been hit by a bus. And that's when that's when they said like about the chronic pain was now an aspect of it. So yeah, then it just got worse. And I was still kind of living a little bit of a normal life like I was at college but then if I'd go out with my friends at night the next day I would I wouldn't be able to go to college and like I'd be in bed and we just always thought I had the flu like we just thought it was like a recurrent infection because I remember every night on a Tuesday we'd go on a student night out and every Wednesday for about nine months I would be at the doctor saying I feel like I've got the flu but now I know it was the chronic infections yeah so it was then it was like the pain and the flu-like symptoms then it like progressed and it got a lot worse. So you were 12 years old when you first got sick and you just ended describing your college life and how you were still functioning somewhat, but you were sick all the time. You were tired all the time. You really couldn't go out without feeling miserable the next day. So this is about yeah. 10 years later. You're 10 years into oh, your sickness. Oh, sorry, no, like college in the, in the UK is different. So that's when you're 18. So you go to college before you go to uni here. So university we was what you call college. So this was when I was 18 and I was like going out a bit. I was like working part-time in like a fashion clothing store. But then very, very quickly, like I had to quit that job because I literally was like every half an hour, I remember asking the 
my manager, oh, can I go to the toilet? And I would just lie on the floor in the toilet because I just couldn't, I physically, I couldn't stand up and do it. And that's when I was 18. And I left the job. I was like, I still have no idea what's wrong with me, but chronic fatigue, chronic pain. And that was 18. But back then, because I still looked fine and I didn't really tell anyone what was going on, it was kind of oblivious to everyone else. So here you are, 18 years old, six years after you first got sick. At this point, did you and your family just reside with the fact that you had chronic fatigue yeah. syndrome and chronic pain syndrome and that yeah. this was something you had to live with the rest of your life? Yeah, to be honest, if you're just being told you're fatigued, you don't take that seriously. Like, I, I'm being told, yeah, you're fatigued. Well, I'm like, yeah, well, I know I am. <laughs> That's why I'm here. And you can't take that seriously. If someone tells you you're fatigued, you associate that word with tiredness. And you don't take that seriously. I didn't take it seriously. I continued to push my body, like, abuse it, like, alcohol and partying. Whilst, like, a week later, for a week after, I wouldn't be able to get out of bed because nobody took it seriously. So why would I take it seriously? I treated it like it was a joke as well. So at what point did you realize that this wasn't just chronic fatigue syndrome and chronic pain and that there was something else going on? Well, I went to uni the first year. It was like part-time, but apart from going into the lectures, I really was just in bed. And then the second year, this is so stupid of me, I went to Australia as like part of my university program to study journalism in Sydney. And when I went, I couldn't even carry a bag onto the plane. And my mom had to come with me because I couldn't even like carry a suitcase. But I still went and basically nine months later, I was in a wheelchair and I dropped out and I was on a flight back to England, arriving near the range in London airport. A Gatwick in London airport in a wheelchair for my family and everyone was just really shocked at how sick I'd got so quickly. Emma, once you returned back from Australia to England and you were in the wheelchair, why were your doctors saying that you were actually in the wheelchair? Were they still attributing this all to just chronic fatigue? Yeah, they were literally were like, we're going to help you talk your way out of it. And then the worst part of that was is I tried to go back to university and I was studying fashion communications and I went to fashion week and I was in the middle of a fashion show, like in the media side of it, taking the pictures for the company that I was working for in Australia. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to clap. I literally can't stand up and I can't clap in the middle of a London fashion week fashion show. And I basically went back to the media centre, uploaded the pictures that we needed to put out and I tried to walk back to the tube. I couldn't walk. I had to just lie on a bench. Got to my friends and I literally had to ring my boss and say, I physically, I can't do it. I cannot go back to Fashion Week. That was the first day of Fashion Week in the September. And then I realised how am I supposed to go back to uni in two weeks? Because we go to uni September till June. And I thought I can't go back. And because I was being told I was fatigued, I was like, okay, I'll take a year out, go home, rest. Oh, and then in a year, I'll be fine. I'll go back. And that was not the case at all. So you also mentioned that your doctor said they're going to talk you out of the wheelchair, which sort of makes me think that they thought it was more than just chronic fatigue and that maybe you were doing this to yourself psychologically. Was, was that a component of it as well at this, at this point? Well, at that point in time, like the UK medical system, they'd partnered with a British insurance company, like a benefits company. And so many people were, were with chronic fatigue were claiming benefits 
they wanted to come up with a treatment which means that people with chronic fatigue couldn't claim benefits to live off and this study found that psychotherapy and psychology improved fatigue so basically anybody who had chronic fatigue who when then went to apply for benefits were told well you don't need them because you can have psychotherapy and get out of your wheelchair or get out of bed and now now like that was years ago like now that's been proven to be flawed that study it was completely flawed and biased and the, the attitude towards chronic fatigue has changed but this was happening to me in the midst of that where chronic fatigue diagnosis meant psychotherapy and and then you'll be fine how many doctors did you see in total before you got your diagnosis so you got diagnosed at 23 you were 12 when you got sick so for that 11 year period you must have seen a lot of doctors i don't know exactly but well over 50. i've got my medical notes from just my general practitioner and the amount of appointments that i had in that 10 year period you're looking at like at least 40 appointments like to the same practice saying there's something wrong and then adding all the specialists and when i was in australia i was going to the doctors in australia like i don't know what's wrong with me i can't walk i can't get out of bed and i saw so many doctors there as well and they had no idea did you develop any neurological symptoms as your symptoms progressed over this 11-year period i didn't get neurological symptoms until i was yeah until i was 21. so i basically dropped out of uni and thought okay i'll send you a resting but within that between that september when i was at fashion week by the january i was completely housebound so i couldn't go out at all and i needed to use a wheelchair inside the house i could still get out of bed for like a little bit a day but basically that's when the neurological problems started like seizures and neuropathy and horrific feelings of like tingling sensations bugs crawling like all over me which weren't obviously there it was really scary and i used to wake up in the night and feel like someone was slashing across my face because the trigeminal neuralgia like the nerve in the face was being damaged and none of it was real but it was so terrifying because there was no explanation i never had I, i'd never even heard of this before yeah so it was bad i had a loss of sensation in my legs my arms i was paralyzed below the waist yeah it was really bad <laughs> so when all these neurological symptoms started did you go back to see a neurologist to see what they thought was going on no because by this time i was bedridden i physically couldn't get out i i had to be carried if i would i basically stopped going i had been 10 years nobody had helped me and every time I would push my body physically because my energy levels were so poor, if I even attempted to leave the house, all it would do would make me more sick because it would be pushing my body too far. I was in and out of hospital a few times. Um, ambulances were coming because one time a general practitioner came, they used to come to check that I wouldn't, didn't have blood clots in my legs because I couldn't move my legs for months and months and months. And she did the reflex test where they kind of hit your joints with that hammer. And, and nothing moved my legs didn't move and she rang an ambulance and they came and they took me away and I was actually admitted to a stroke ward so everyone else around me had had strokes and was paralyzed and the staff were absolutely horrified of the state I was in I couldn't stand up at all I couldn't walk at all I, I couldn't even sit up and they said to me you'll be in here for a long period of time until we find out what's wrong with you 
and until you can walk again, talk again, eat again. I couldn't even feed myself at this point because I had the paralysis in my arms and legs. Well, my arms couldn't feed myself. And after, I think it was eight days, they did every single test under the sun on the public healthcare system and they couldn't find anything wrong with me. And they said that I need to see a psychiatrist and they discharged me. You sort of gave up. And the only reason you ended up back in the hospital under medical care is because your home doctor basically called an ambulance. So then they sent you home after saying, we still don't know what's wrong with you. This is a psychological issue. Go home and seek mental health care. And what happened from there? That was the last time that I left the bedroom for seven months. So after that was when I was completely bedridden. I couldn't, I couldn't move at all. And I couldn't, downstairs I couldn't even go to the toilet next to my bed I used to have a commode like to go to the toilet and I just would be carried like from my bed to the to bath next to my bed and just washed every two weeks I lost so much weight I mean it was the worst like time of my life but I was so ill that I wasn't really conscious so you couldn't communicate with me you couldn't talk to me I was like not there so I don't remember. I don't remember any of it. And I was so light sensitive. I was in blackout. I didn't see any light for over seven months. And I was so noise sensitive that noise, if someone talked, would send so much pain like through my body because my nervous system that I didn't have any communication at all for about seven months. At the end of that seven-month period, what changed? I had a general practitioner doctor come again like they did and she said to my parents that I didn't have long left to live and she she just said what is happening to Emma is what happens to people at the end of their life and this is she said this is what I see when patients are 80 or 90 years old and it's just it's hard to talk about um, and she said that my lungs and my heart, my heart was failing. I had to go private and I had to go then because there wasn't long to wait. So how did your family respond at this point? Were, were they, was this the action that then triggered you guys to say we need to figure out what the cause is and then to really push aggressively with the medical community again? Yeah, because then it was like, obviously, I'm not fatigued. If this person's saying that I'm dying, uh, then, yeah, then we realised that we had to go private. But ironically, we'd looked into a private place, Breakthrough Medical, a few months earlier, and they'd actually said that I was too sick and they couldn't help me. And that was months before. And because I was about to be put on a tube to be fed and I couldn't walk all and was being transported around with stretcher, they just said they couldn't help me. So we basically rang back and booked an appointment and we didn't tell them I was the same person. We pretended that I was someone else and we didn't tell them how sick I was. And my family went to get a private ambulance for me because I couldn't even go like in a car because of the pain, like of the movement of the car. But I said to my family, I remember saying I can't go in an ambulance because the sound of the door would be too... I was so scared of dying on the trip from any sound of in the ambulance because my body got so sick from noise. Um, so we ended up, my stepdad carried me 
like downstairs to the car I remember going outside and I had my eyes shut I couldn't open my eyes because of the light even with sunglasses on and I breathed in the air and it was the first time I breathed the outside air for 11 months and it was the most amazing thing ever um and we basically wrapped me in like three duvets so I couldn't feel anything and we took me there and when I got there everybody was so horrified I didn't even look like I was alive so once you got there what tests did they perform how how did they proceed once you arrived um they took blood and they just they just sent off straight away because the reason that we went there is because we had seen a video like months before I'd seen a video on YouTube of an American documentary under our skin and there was a girl who was being carried about the house who had paralysis and I remember seeing that and thinking oh my gosh that is me that is what's wrong with me that girl can't move either and I'd not met other people with chronic fatigue who were sick as me and had the wide range of problems because by that point I had a lot of cardiac and heart problems as well and I just thought that's what's wrong with me. I've never heard of this thing, Lyme disease, but that's what I've got. My family said, don't get hopes up. Um, we asked the GP to test me, the general practitioner in the UK, and they said, no, I don't live in a high-risk area. I was like, well, I've been sick for like, over 10 years, and I would live on the back of a forest. And this place breaks bit. We Googled them, and they tested for Lyme disease. And everyone said, don't get your hopes up, don't get your hopes up. But I just knew that's what was wrong with me. And they sent off the blood, and two weeks later it came back and it's positive and I was like to everybody I couldn't say it because I couldn't even talk but in my head I was thinking I told you so. Emma do you recall which labs your blood was sent off to? Yeah so I had three labs um, Immunosciences, Igenex and Invita labs because the test I think one of them came back intermediate so it's not like strong positive or not strong negative because the immune system is so compromised. A lot of the time you don't make the antibodies against the Lyme. So when you're so sick, it can be hard to get a positive test. So we wanted to do multiple labs to try and get the overall picture and they all came back positive. Now that you have a positive or several positive tests, what is your course of action? You're horribly sick. What are your doctors doing right away to get you better? I couldn't have obviously any like intravenous or anything like that. I was way too sick. They basically just sent me home and they gave me a cyclovir, which is an antiviral medication because my whole face was ballooned out. My, I was so underweight, but my whole face was swollen, which is a symptom of Epstein-Barr virus, glandular fever. And she said, I don't want to wait for the test. Like this is what you've got as well. Because over the years, I'd accumulated viral infections and basically never been able to fight them off because my immune system was depressed from the Lyme. So they sent me home with that and they sent me home with artusinate, which is an anti-malarial for Babesia, the co-infection of Lyme. And within about three weeks, I could stand up for about 10 seconds. And then about a week later, I took like two steps like next to my bed. And it's the first time I'd walked in over a year. So you knew at that point you were on the right track because you were making progress and you were getting worse and worse and worse. And now here you are finally getting to be able to walk a little bit again and then a little bit more and stand. So once yeah. this progress started happening, did you continue on with additional therapies yeah. or did you keep on with the current course of action? Well, we did that. We just stayed with that for a bit until I was stronger. And then I started 
there's so many treatments it's so hard to like to think about I the other thing I started at the beginning was we call it low-dose immunotherapy in England but I think it's low-dose antigen therapy in America it's for chemical food and kind of dust or pollen sensitivities because I couldn't eat anything so obviously without with no nutrition you can't really regain strength and recover so that was a priority really to help me be able to eat again and it helped me so much be able to eat I lived off about five foods for a year that were just pureed and spoon fed by my mom and I could start to eat and it was just amazing and then I could regain a bit more energy and strength and yeah so that was the first thing I did and then I did when I was like quite a lot stronger I'd say like four months later um I started doing penicillin injections so the antibiotic penicillin is basically a shot I think you call it in America it I would be at Breakspear I basically lived at that clinic for like two and a half years literally lived there not home and had the shot twice a week for eight months and that was for the Lyme like Borrelia bacteria and also for strep because I had really really high strep antibodies to bacteria so I did that and that really helped as well like my energy increased after that in addition to your food sensitivities, because you mentioned you were only eating a handful of foods at that point because you were so just allergic to everything, did you have environmental and chemical sensitivities as well at this point? Yeah, so once I got well enough to like be going out of the house, because for a long period of time still I couldn't go out, so they didn't affect me, the chemical sensitivities, because we were chemical free in the house, I would go outside and get really sick from breathing in like smoke or perfume. I couldn't, I couldn't go to anyone's houses and I couldn't go out without a mask on. Um, and I couldn't have anyone come into our house because I was so ill, acutely ill from breathing in chemicals because my body couldn't distinguish the difference between danger and non-danger. So it would, it would think everything I breathed in was a threat and react and it was awful you mentioned that you'd go out wearing a mask was there a particular brand of mask that you would use when you go go out i know it's very popular in the lime community the vog mask yeah um no like i don't i don't think we i think i don't think that's an english company like here we've got something called healthy house and they're basically a company with they'd have like organic cotton bedding and towels that's suitable for like people with allergies and sensitivities they have products for people with electro hypersensitivity and they have the masks as well, which are made from organic cotton with a bamboo or charcoal filter. No, bamboo and organic cotton material and charcoal filter. So they're the kind of go-to place for chemical, electro, environmental sensitivities and they provide everything you need. So after you were on the eight months of penicillin and also working with this low-dose immunotherapy to help you overcome some of your food sensitivities, you were putting some weight back on, you were feeling better, you were walking again. What was your next treatment that you did? I basically had so much neuropathy from the Lyme that I had no feeling at all in my legs. Like I could use them, but if you'd have cut my leg open, I wouldn't have felt it. And if you touched my legs, I couldn't feel anybody touching me. And I lost my sense of smell and my sense of taste. So I went into my doctor one day and I had the most horrific neuropathic pain. Like, I'll be honest, like I was suicidal because it was so bad. It, it felt like some, there was a knife inside me and it was just on a loop 
around, like slashing my body. And I just, I couldn't cope with, with that level of neuropathic pain. So my doctor at Breakspear, they have a cell repair program. It's basically a program of fats, infusions of fats, because our brain is made of fat. Our nerves are made of fat. So they use that to treat anybody with like MS, um, Alzheimer's, memory problems, neuropathic pain. I did that for 12 weeks. I did infusions and that really changed my life because it brought down the pain a lot and I regained sense of smell and sense of taste. I mean, they measured that with electrodes on the brain and they put, they put smells and food in your mouth and they measured the activity in your brain. And the first time I did it, there was none. I couldn't smell or taste at all. And that's because that part of the brain had been damaged by the Lyme and these are infections. And once I did the cell repair program, that started to come back again. So that was really amazing. I was so fortunate to be able to do that because obviously none of it's cheap. So what was your next step in your healing journey at this point? I think mainly it was detox then because a lot of people with Lyme, they have compromised detox pathways as well. So we have such a buildup of everyday toxicity of like heavy metals, pesticides, herbicides, things like that. So doing infrared saunas and taking things like glutathione and focusing a lot on detox really helped me with my energy levels. So you mentioned that you focus on detoxing and eliminating all of these toxins that are building up in your system. And we know a lot of these toxins get stuck in your lymphatic system. So did you do anything to help move along your lymphatic system to eliminate these toxins? Yeah, so this is, I've only really learned about the lymphatic system in the last year. So the first two years, I didn't really know about it. But it's basically a waste removal system. So it's on the outside of all of our blood vessels and all the junk and the trash. It gets thrown into your lymph system, which is carried to your liver, which is where you detox. But a lot of people with chronic illness, like tick illness in particular, this gets clogged because your liver and your body can't detox effectively. So you have a buildup of toxins, which then makes you even more sick and more fatigued. So I do a lot of treatment of lymphatic drainage and the pairing technique, which is a specific type of drainage for people with chronic fatigue. And that has helped me so much in the last year. That's probably the thing that's helped me the most recently. Did you feel immediate relief after you received these pairing techniques or these lymphatic massages? Yeah, like definitely. I mean, it can make you a bit worse before you get better because you're releasing so many toxins. But I'd had a lot of head and neck troubles like following my injuries. So a lot of the buildup of the junk was actually in my head and neck. So I had so much head pressure and pain and migraines and so much neck pain and stiffness. And this really helped almost immediately release a lot of the problems above my shoulders which was being caused like by this buildup of, of lymph. So another thing that is common among people with Lyme disease is developing other illnesses that kind of go along with it, like POTS and yeah. mascular activation syndrome. Did you ever develop any of these types of things as well? Yeah, so POTS is one of the reasons really I was bedridden because every time I would be trying to be sat up, if someone would lift me up, I would just black out because my heart rate was... Well, resting, it was 140 beats a minute. So when they tried to sit me up, it was like 165. And it just black out straight away. And that still affects my life now. It, it's because the immune system and the infections affect the autonomic nervous system. So that's why we have POTS. 
So if we can, I find like getting the infections low down does help with the parts. Um, and then EDS is genetic Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. I'm hypermobile. And a lot of my family have it, but I never had symptoms of it with the joint pain and things like that until it was triggered by the Lyme. And that just affected my life a lot with the pain in the joints. But I think a lot of the time these things can happen all at once. And it's a bit like a something like a tower that topples over and your body can handle only so much and then it just crashes. So we talked about you being allergic to many foods and also having a lot of environmental and chemical sensitivities. And oftentimes MCAS or mast cell activation syndrome goes hand in hand with Lyme. Do you think that you had mast cell activation as well? Did any doctor ever suggest that? Yeah. So my doctor at Breakspear, I said to her one day, I said, oh, it sounds like I have mast cell. She said, I don't even diagnose that because almost every single person that sets foot in this clinic has mast cell. And she said, we just take it as part of the parcel. So that was the confirmation that she said it, it's just a, a diagnosis like you, you react to everything we don't need to put a label on it you're allergic to literally the world which a lot of people at the clinic I get treated at are as well was there anything that you were prescribed or could take to help those at least the food sensitivities so you can eat and put some weight back on and, and have a healthy diet yeah so I take Nalcom I think it has like it's called sodium chromogligate I'm reading it off the bottle <laughs> And it's a mast cell stabilizer. So you basically you put it under your tongue and it stabilizes the mast cells. And then 20 minutes later, you can eat. And this helped me so much because before this, I literally was just vomiting. Like when I ate, it was awful. Like my body just rejected everything because it perceived all food as a threat as well. So this has really helped with the with getting the nutrition through food and also gaining weight because if you don't have weight and like fat reserves, your body can't really fight off illness. Um, it's really important to be like a good way and to be strong, like to try and f- to deal with these things. Um, so my doctor, like you can't buy that though. That's a prescription. At any time during your healing journey, did you consider using herbal therapies to heal? Yeah. So because I couldn't do intravenous antibiotics because I had a lot of problems with my heart. It was very, very, very weak at the start. And my doctor was scared that the antibiotics would just cause it to like my body just to crash even more and it was just way too dangerous for me to do that um and I couldn't take all antibiotics because my gut was such a mess with like candida yeast overgrowth leaky gut we just she said like it would just make it all worse and like with all the food problems so as well as the penicillin injections like I did the Buna herbal protocol for two years and I tolerated that really well and I really feel like it definitely helped and then I think I, I want to consider now consider Cowden protocol for future, but because it's alcohol-based tinctures, the minute I can't tolerate alcohol, so I'm not going to do that yet. But I do think herbal is a really good way to go for people that are so sick they can't deal with antibiotics because I know so many people that have gone and got loads of IV antibiotics and they were too ill and it's just made them more sick. You kind of almost have to be strong enough to deal with it. And especially because antibiotics are toxic and they can cause a lot of die-offs. If you're not strong enough and fit enough and healthy enough, even which is ironic because we're all sick, then it can be a really bad way to go. And as well, like oral antibiotics, just so bad, like for the gut. I know people who it took them years to recover from the damage that did. So I do really believe in like herbal. One of the things you mentioned in your pre-interview questionnaire, which I found very interesting, is that 
your doctors didn't want you to take probiotics because you were just so ultra sensitive and your body would detect them as being bad bacteria instead of good bacteria. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, so when you read about antibiotics and treating kind of chronic infection, you 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 hear everywhere about probiotics and prebiotics. And I went to my doctor and was like, why am I not taking this? Like, am I not supposed to be doing this? And she said, no, because she thought that my immune system was so compromised that if I took bacteria, because that's essentially what it is, it's good bacteria, that my body wouldn't recognize it as good bacteria and it would actually recognize it as bad bacteria and it would make me more sick. So she said that I couldn't do it. And then I went to her and I've been eating like sauerkraut and fermented foods and I was so happy with myself. And she just shouted at me. She was like, you shouldn't be doing that. What are you doing? And she just said like, no, it's bad. Don't do it. Yeah, so that was quite surprising, but I'm so glad I have her to guide me because she's really specialises with patients who are very sensitive to everything. That's kind of her speciality. Emma, what is the view of CBD oil in the UK? Here in the States, it's become very widely embraced and many people are using it therapeutically for a variety of health conditions and it's really helping a lot of people. Is it viewed the same way in the UK? So because of the reputation of cannabis as kind of a recreational drug that's given cannabinoid really bad name it was really kind of frowned upon but I think there's been so much happening in the media especially with neurological disorders like epilepsy and children who have been fine with CBD oil who without CBD oil couldn't live a normal life I think people are becoming more accepting to it and a lot of people I know actually have tried it and I did try it but it's quite expensive here um, to get especially because I have like such chronic pain like I needed quite high strength and quite high dose it's a lot more expensive so I just didn't feel like it was the priority like for my treatment but it's something that's more used for like sleep and maybe like mood on kind of yeah rather than such extreme problems that's probably what it's recognized more for here at the minute but I do think you see it more and more in the shops but you're legally only allowed to sell five percent here so if you wanted 10 15 25 you have to get it off the internet and it's more expensive which makes it difficult for a lot of people I'm going to back up a little when you first got your diagnosis with Lyme disease did that change the way your friends and family looked at you and treated you as a person yeah, in terms of, to be honest, in terms of like the house, it kind of made them realize how ill I was because they were like, oh my gosh, that's what's wrong with you. It's like, well, nothing's changed. There's nothing different wrong with me than there was a week ago. It's just the diagnosis had changed or I found out the cause of my chronic fatigue was Lyme and it was taken a lot more seriously. So almost people had more respect for like the battle that I was going through when they knew about the Lyme yeah so it was only it was quite positive really I think and it's only as Lyme's become such more prevalent in the media it's everywhere now everybody knows about it in the UK I meet people and I say I've got Lyme disease and they're like oh my gosh that's such an awful terrible disease and I'm like what really like you think that and it shows the attitudes and how it's changed to a few years ago where people might be like oh so are you tired then do you need to lie down I'm like no <laughs> and out of all of the therapies you've taken out of all the treatments therapies and things that you've done 
which ones would you say worked best for you? I don't, the, the thing is, like, I don't think it's one. I do fully believe it's a combination. And I think the reason why my health has improved so much is because it is a combination of treatment for the antivirals, treatment for the co-infections. I take a lot of herbal tinctures now as well for Babesia and other co-infections, Bartonella, detox, so important with the saunas, the glutathione, like liver support. I do like cupping and things like that, Epsom salt baths, magnesium, dry brushing, the lymphatic drainage, and then really healing the nerves with the cell repair program. And now I just, I have a really high fat diet because the fats are what repair the nerves. So I think like a combination really of all those things has, has what's helped the most. I think if you just do one thing, to be honest, like I don't think it really works. I think you need, a, your body is like a whole, not a part. So if you're just going to treat one part, I find that I don't see as much success when I'm looking at other people, how they're doing. Whereas when there's people like me who are doing a lot of different things, that is really what seems to help the most. After all of this, here we are today. How do you feel today after everything you've been through? I still feel unwell. Like I'm not, I'm not going to say I'm fully recovered because I'm not. I've been in treatment for three and a half years, but I'm a lot better than I was. I can go out the house for like and be kind of up and about for like two to three hours a day. And then I rest about seven to eight hours and I sleep about 12. So I'm still quite poorly. I'm probably like 40% recovered, but compared to what I was three years ago, at least I have some kind of a life now, um, which I'm so grateful for. Like, I don't know if I'll get to a hundred percent. Obviously a lot of it depends on finances, which is the sad thing for a lot of people. But I've been so lucky to get to as far as I've come and I will keep trying. I will keep doing treatments and learning about new things. I won't give up because I will always try to get to a hundred percent. But physically, yeah, it's tough. Like I still feel unwell. Like I'm not gonna, you know, put a. I'm not gonna like deny that. Um, but mentally as well, I think it just gives you a new perspective on the world. You just don't you don't see things the same way. You just can't after you've lived through that. It completely changes your life and it changes who you are. But I do think that. I used to hate this and people would say this to me, oh, it happens for a reason. And I would literally want to punch people in the face. Like, do not tell me that I almost died. And that happened to me for a reason because no reason on this planet was good enough for me. But now I do, I am starting to see that way. I can't believe I'm even saying that. I, I saw this like priest once in this church and he said to me, "He, I'm not religious at all, but he was like, this happened to you because now you go to show the way for others and whether that's in terms of recovery or I don't know what exactly that is but he said like it's given to people who can survive it because my big kind of mental aspect with it was I've met friends online who have passed away from it and I was so torn up for a long time like why did I survive why didn't I not die everyone everybody around me thought that I was going to die and I didn't and for a long time I couldn't understand that like why why am I still here when that was not supposed to be the way and now I can kind of see it because it's given me the tools to do things in my life that I wouldn't have been able to do before. Can you share with our audience what tools you have developed and how you've begun to use them for example you have a beautiful Instagram page where you're doing a great deal of outreach and helping other people who are going through this journey. 
Can you share with us what you've developed, how your life is more rich as a consequence of this, and how you are now a better person? Yeah, like I started to write a blog a few years ago because when the doctors couldn't help me, I took it upon myself to think, I've got to figure this out. And I wrote that for over a year until I saw the Lyme disease video on YouTube. And I basically wrote it in chronological order of what happened to me because I thought I need to work this out of, of why I'm like this and then people just started to read it and it helps people gain a different perspective I think on people who were fatigued and helped them realize we are not fatigued like we're very sick or we can be very sick and now like I do a lot like on Instagram like about all sorts like Lyme, chronic fatigue, chronic pain, POTS, EDS, like mast cell, like electrical sensitivity. I try and talk about all the different aspects because I've realized there's a whole world of people out there that need help. And the worst part is, is most people can't afford the help. So I know that I've been so lucky financially to go and see all these amazing doctors and spend so much time with them. And I've learned so much from them. That if I can share what these doctors have taught me to teach other people through social media which then they can go and and try themselves at home without having to pay for a doctor if that can help them that's basically the reason that I do it and I do actually it's hard like and it's draining like emotionally but I do think it helps like for example there's this one woman and I met her at a chronic fatigue group years ago like in person and I remember she got sick after a bite and I was like oh my god that woman that I just remembered one day and I got in touch with the group I said can I have this woman's number I rang her she didn't remember me and I said you're gonna think I'm crazy but have you heard of Lyme disease because you told me you got fatigued after a bite and she was thought she honestly thought I was crazy anyway she went and got tested for it and she'd been diagnosed with MS and she was in a wheelchair and she rings me like quite regularly like crying saying she's so grateful because I saved her life and it's things like that that make me kind of keep going because so many times I have wanted to give up and I still have those days where I feel so poorly still and I think I can't do this anymore but it's people like that that keep me going because I think I have to because there's people here on this planet that need help and that's the way I see it now like there's a woman messaged me yesterday on Instagram and she said, oh, my gosh, from America, saying I I got Lyme disease 25 years ago and the doctors told me that I wouldn't get sick from it and I didn't need treatment. And she said, I've been sick ever since the diagnosis of fibromyalgia. She said, I've had no improvement in 25 years. And she said, I've just come across your page and you connected all the dots that actually my whole 25 years of ill health is probably Lyme still. And I thought, I can't believe somebody on the other side of the world has been sick for 25 years. That breaks my heart. But then from coming on my page, this now gives a hope that she can treat it and get better. And that's what makes the whole thing worthwhile and why I really don't give up. What would you do if your mom came into you tomorrow and showed you her arm and she was being bitten by a tick? What would you recommend to her so that she wouldn't have to go through all the pain that you've gone through in your journey? Well, I, I asked her this question before. She read it on the questionnaire and she said, you would probably just cry and scream. I thought, I can't say that, Mom. But I think it's really important to be aware of like safe tick removal and you can remove it with tweezers, send it off, get the tick tested. You can do that in the UK, I don't know if you can there, to see if it has Lyme or co-infections. And if it does, 
take precautions, take herbs or antibiotics, whatever's best for you, and just monitor your symptoms. As soon as you get symptoms, if you do get them, go and get treatment. Do not wait 10 years like I did because the longer you have it, the harder it is to get rid of. The quicker you can treat it, the quicker you can get better. And I just like think it's so important for people to talk about it because the more we talk about it, the more people we can help and the less people will have to suffer like like myself and my family have. That's why we do so much on social media and work with charities in the UK because we don't want anyone to have to suffer like how our family has. Thank you for listening to the Tick Boot Camp interview with Emma Franklin. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Emma Franklin and her tick disease journey, please visit our Instagram at Emma Blonde Voyage. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Boot Camp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of your post. Third, we here at Tick Boot Camp have created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by our past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. We would appreciate it if you would contact us with any suggestions you have for improvements. Fourth, Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get the automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our listeners, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.